But I want to uh, get now into Philippians. Uh, this is a series that I was intending on starting last week with you, but you started it without me, which is good, um, because we're on a time schedule. And if you want to know what that schedule is, it's in the back, in the foyer, on the table there is a small scrap of paper which has on it the, what we're going to be preaching on, what you're going to be hearing sermons on um, week by week. All right, So you have the verses there. So if you want to, you can read what you're going to be hearing on Sunday in preparation to receive uh, what God has for you. So you could, you could have read uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, which is what we're going to be covering today. But if you want to, for next Sunday, you can read Philippians 2, 12 through 18 and sort of just begin to process that before we come together and look at it all together. So that is in the back. So we are in Philippians 2. And I didn't get a chance last week to kind of introduce this book to you, so I want to introduce it really quickly. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, writes the book of Philippians, this book that we have here, while he's in prison. He's either in prison in Rome or possibly somewhere, maybe Ephesus, but he's in prison right now. And he's writing a letter. At best, he's under house arrest. At worst, he's in a federal prison, uh, much worse than our prison system today. His ambitious missionary work, he's been planting churches, he's been evangelizing, he's been doing miracles, he's been preaching. All of that has come to a, to a stop. Right? He is now under lock and keys in prison. And as he sits in prison, somebody comes and visits him. And the person who comes and visits him's name is Epaphroditus. Say, say Epaphroditus. Nobody names their child Epaphroditus nowadays. We're pregnant. Maybe, I don't know, Amy's downstairs. We'll have to see. I might, probably not. I'll probably get that voted down. But Epaphroditus comes and visits Paul in prison. And, and Epaphroditus is a member of the church in Philippi. And the church in Philippi is a church that Paul had founded a few years earlier. And Epaphroditus comes from that church and he brings some money. He brings some food to Paul. Because in the first century, if you're in prison, they don't feed you. So if somebody don't, if people don't come and bring you food on a regular basis, you will starve in prison. So Epaphroditus has come all the way from Philippi to bring Paul provisions in prison. And Paul decides to write a letter for Epaphroditus to take back to the church in Philippi. And it's sort of like a thank you letter. And that's where we get today the book of Philippians. It's a letter written by Paul in prison to the church in Philippi as a way of saying thank you and as a way of encouraging them in their faith. And so we're going to read here now for the second, uh, from the second chapter. And as we begin reading and as we begin attending to this book and to this portion of Philippians, I want to just keep in mind that Paul is not writing this to any one individual. He's writing this to a church, a community of people. And we need to kind of receive it in that same way. We need to read this and receive it because it's written to us. It's not written to Chuck. It's written to our church. Does that make sense? It's written to a community of people. So let's receive it like that. All right, so I'm going to read now Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then we're going to kind of move through it. But let's pray first. Let's do that. That's a good idea. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you, and as we open up your word, as we hear what you have for us this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes and our ears and our minds to receive what you have for us. Lord, let us find in Scripture the voice of our Savior calling out to us. Thank you, Lord. 
Amen. I'm going to read the whole section, and then I'm going to go through it. So if you want to, you can just listen. You don't have to read along. Paul writes this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul starts out this section. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ... If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, it's, it's better translation would be something like this. Seeing as how you have every encouragement from being united in Christ. Because he's not saying if, like he's saying, if you do, if you don't, you know, I'm not sure. He's saying it's sort of like you would say, look, if the sky's blue, then such and such a thing. Right? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... And then Paul lays out four benefits of living a life of faith. He says that if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if you are a Christian here today, you have become united with Christ. There's a bond that you share with Christ that transcends our circumstances, that transcends our feelings, that transcends the emotions that we might be experiencing in this moment. There's a bond that you have with Christ that goes past all those things. It unites us with Christ, and through Christ, we become united with people around us. And that's an encouraging thought. Uh, as Donna was talking about the vision that she had about the promises of God, there's, there's a promise that I always keep uh, inside of me. It's sort of like I, you know, a life verse that I always kind of come back to. And it's out of Matthew 28. And Jesus tells his disciples, just before he leaves, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. And and literally it means like even to the precipice, even to the very edge of existence. I'm with you always. That's a promise that still stands with God. That's a promise that Jesus is with us, even to the very edge of existence. He is with us. And that's what it means to be united with Christ. The constant presence of our Savior it's not like God saved us and then walked away and said, okay, now it's up to you. You know, do, do what you got to do. He's with us, present with us. If you've received any comfort from his love, right? Here I wonder if Paul's thinking about his own position, right? He's in prison and he's receiving comfort. 
He's receiving comfort from a church that's hundreds of miles away. Comfort because they saw a need that he had, and they went and met that need. If you have received any comfort from his love, any fellowship of the Spirit, last night we talked about in our small group, we talked about how the Spirit of God partners with us, and we need to partner with the Spirit of God. That's what it means to have fellowship with the Spirit. We're aligning with what the Spirit is doing in and among and through us. I'm not interested in facing the world on my own strength. But when I have the fellowship of the Spirit with me, I gain access to power which is beyond myself, beyond my own capabilities. And lastly, he says, if you've received any tenderness and compassion, the tenderness and compassion of fellowship with one another, all of these things are uh, done through the power of the Holy Spirit, but they're done in the midst of a community. This is what I mean when I say we need to read Philippians as a community. Right? Paul is receiving comfort from God through Epaphroditus. Paul is experiencing the fellowship of the Spirit as he's fellowshipping with other believers around him. All these things come to us in the midst of community. You need one another to experience the fullness and the richness of the presence of God. Right? Jesus also says another promise to his disciples. He says, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, when you're by yourself. Now, of course, I do believe that Jesus is with us even when we're by ourselves. But that's not what he said. He says, when two or more are gathered in my name. In other words, there's something unique, something special about when you get together with other believers, you gather together with them. The benefits of shared life come in our community. So he goes on, he says, make my joy complete. And I could say as a pastor, I completely understand what Paul's sentiment is here. Right? When I think about our fellowship together, by the way, could somebody open some of the windows? I, I don't know about you, but I am stuffy in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Come on. We need some breath of the Holy Spirit up in here. In Greek and in Hebrew, the same words used for spirit is used for wind and breath. Did you know that? Yeah. We need some spirit up in here. As a pastor, I understand Paul's sentiment completely. Uh I think about our fellowship. I think about us as a, as a body, even while you're worshiping together. And um, I love the spirit of us. I love how we're welcoming and inviting and loving towards one another and towards even God bless them, even to tourists. God bless you guys and bring on the tourists. We love the tourists. That's all by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, take all of that. Take all that fellowship. And if you want to make your pastor happy, if you want to make me a happy guy, if you want to make my joy complete, do this, right? Put it up there. Do this. Go. Next verse. <laughs> Be like-minded. <laughs> Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do that, brothers and sisters. If you could only do that. If you want to make your pastor happy, if you want to make Paul happy, I dare say, if you want to make Jesus happy, be of like mind with one another. I was talking to my wife um, this last week, uh, two weeks ago, I think, while I was preparing, while I was preparing for Philippians 1, and I said to her, I, I feel bad because 
every time I read the Bible nowadays, I just see one thing over and over and over again, and that is just love one another. Love one another. It's, I, I could be reading Romans. I could be reading Philippians. I could be reading one of the Gospels. I just I see it over and over again. I, I don't know if that's because my vision is distorted. That's all I want because that's all I'm looking for. But maybe that's all that's there. Little children love one another. John, the apostle John, he was the last disciple to know Jesus um, before. You know, all the others had been martyred, and John was the last one alive. And it said that when he was getting older, he was in his 80s, and he had to be carried to church uh, by, by people. And he would just sit there. He'd just be present. And every once in a while, you know, it's the Apostle John. And, you know, I, I can't imagine being a pastor of that church and having to preach in front of John. You know, he's heard Jesus preach. He's, he's not going to find me impressive, you know. Um, but every once in a while, they would say, John, would you share something with us? And the story goes that John would only say one thing. He would say, little children love one another. And they'd say, John, share something else with us. And he'd say, little children love one another. That's all he would say. And finally, one day, somebody said to him, why do you always say that? Why can't... I'm sure that there's more that you would like to say. And John said, if we could do that one thing, we would fulfill all the others. If we could just learn to do that one thing, we could fulfill all the others. That's the one commandment Jesus gives his disciples in the upper room. A new commandment I give to you. Something new. Love one another. Love one another. So that's our command. That's our commitment. That's what I see here in Scripture. Let's move on. Let's go to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Whoop, back a little bit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own needs, but also consider the needs of others. Yeah, amen. Don't look only to your own needs, but consider the needs of others as well. Uh, I think about Steve Shell. I don't know if I've mentioned Steve Shell before, but he's a pastor. Uh, he was a pastor. He just retired this year of a church up in the Seattle area called Northwest Foursquare. And um, it's in Kirkland. And he's a great, no, it's in Federal Way, I'm sorry. It's a, he's a great guy. He's an amazing guy. He actually serves on our international board of directors. And for our denomination, that's, that's as high up as you can get. So we have our national church, uh, which is headed by a president. And then above our national church, above all the national churches in the world for our denomination, is the international board of directors. And Steve Shell serves on this board. He's an amazing guy, an amazing pastor. And I had the opportunity to go and hear from him a few times. And this is what struck me about him the most, was his humility. It was just incredible to watch. I remember sitting there as a young, I was an associate pastor at, a time, at the time. And we, a bunch of pastors had kind of gathered around Steve. And Steve was teaching us different things about um, pastoring. And he had a model of discipleship and and uh, he talked about, you know, Sunday morning. This is what he does on a Sunday morning and on and on. And I remember sitting there and just like soaking it in. You know, you just feel like you're sitting at the feet of a master. You're just soaking it in. But there was another pastor there uh, who was a newer pastor. And, and he had a decent church. It was doing well and it was growing. And he, you, he had his arms folded. You know, he was sitting there. And you can kind of just watch his face. And he had his thing that he wanted to say. And so when Steve stopped talking, this pastor says, okay, well, I understand that you have that model, but this is what I do. And he, the guy kind of goes, all these things wrong with Steve's model, all the things are right. And for me, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is Steve Shell. Like, Dave, how are you? 
I was about to jump up and, you know, defend the man. And he probably didn't even know my name. But I was, I was going to, you know, I was getting all upset about this. And when this guy finished talking, Steve, uh, who's, you know, he's this amazing pastor and such a well-revered guy. And he just goes, he goes, yeah, you know, yeah, I think that might work. That's good. You should, you should do that. That's good. And I was just blown away at how humble this guy was. I mean, here's this young pastor who's just, you know, tearing apart and setting himself up. But this pastor, Steve, is just like, you know, that's a good idea. Wow, I, I think I learned something there. Thank you for that. And I was amazed that somebody could be so humble. I, God, give me the strength to be that. The truth is, the truth is that we're not humble in front of other people because we assume a world of limited resources and we assume everybody is our rival. We're in competition with one another, right? Steve Shell, he demonstrated that. He's not in competition with anybody. Jesus doesn't have a rival. There is no limit on resources with Jesus. He doesn't have anybody that he's vying with, that he's competing with. And we shouldn't either. That's not how we need to approach life. I'm not in competition with anybody here. And you are not in competition with anybody else. We serve the same God. I'm not in competition with any other church in this city. And uh, nobody should be. God does not have a rival. The environment was very different at the University of Cambridge when I was going to school there. Even in the divinity faculty, I felt so bad. People would come and present papers to our divinity faculty. And it was like chum to sharks. You know, it was like, and then, you know, I'm not going to say everybody there was a Christian. You don't have to study divinity, you know, and be a Christian. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, but in our group, I remember watching, you know, somebody would come from the States or from Germany or something and, and deliver a paper, and all these Ph.D. students would just be slathering, just waiting for the moment that they stopped so they could tear this paper apart. Because in their eyes, if they could, if they could push somebody down, They'd be able to lift themselves up a little bit. The, you, the way to get forward in life is by taking and pushing somebody else. And if you could, it's almost like you're swimming with somebody else. You're beginning to drown. So you pull them down as hard as you can so that you can get a little bit of uh, upward momentum on them going down. That's how the world operates. That's how the world works. That's not how we work. That's not how Christ operates. We don't have a limited amount of resources. We're not in competition with one another. There's a hymn that says, out of his infinite Riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. There is no measure to the Spirit. Right? The Spirit doesn't dry up and leave us, and if we didn't get it then, we're going to miss out on it. God gives continuously. Until we learn humility, until we learn what it means to serve other people, we will never be of like mind. We'll never be able to share life together. Until we lay down that idea that I'm in competition with one another. Uh, Karl Barth, who said this, he said, there's no road to fellowship with God that does not pass by my neighbor's door. In other words, if I want to have fellowship with God, if you want to experience fellowship with God, you have a need for your neighbor. You have a need for the person sitting next to you. But you'll never be able to commune with them. You'll never be able to experience the fullness of God's presence until in humility you lay down yourself and meet them as an equal, as a partner, and not as a rival. If you want to be a Christian, 
you got to love your brother and your sister. So what does it mean to be interested? What, what is Paul talking about? What does he mean when he says, look to the needs of others in verse 4 there? Look to the needs of others and not only to your own needs. Well, he goes on. He'll explain it to you. Let's go to verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Go to the next one. Something to be taken advantage of or grasped. How many guys know that there are some people here who need, and not just here but in our world, who need to not count their authority and position as something to be taken advantage of over others. We need more leaders who are willing to say, I will take my privilege, I will take my advantage, I will take my status and lay it down for the sake of those that I'm serving. That is the model we have with Christ. Someone who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. He had every advantage as a divine person, but he regarded it as nothing. He took it apart. He emptied himself. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. We need leaders who will empty themselves of their position in order to serve others. I was sad to be gone last week. I was sad that I couldn't lead worship with you, although Dave did a great job. I was sad that I couldn't preach with you, although Debbie did a great job sharing with that. I was sad I couldn't be there to fellowship, and especially to take communion. Thank you, Christy, for doing that. But the thing that I was the most sad about missing was Debbie coming up and making a confession before us. And I want you to know, I didn't, I didn't coerce her into that. I didn't even talk to her about that. I mean, that's something that she came up to me and she said, Pastor, I would like to apologize on Sunday morning to people because of the way that I acted at the potluck. And I hope that you were listening. I hope that you were paying attention to that. That is an example of a leader who is willing to take a position of authority and lay it down and say, you know what? I messed up. I apologize. I want to say I did wrong. I'm so sorry to have missed that. I was praying for her the whole time. I was praying for you too, but especially I was praying for her. I want to read you uh, a little quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You're getting a lot of quotes today. I hope that's okay. If it's not, again, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> so, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a, uh, was a German theologian. He was uh, uh, arrested and put into a concentration camp by the Nazis for aiding Jews during the Holocaust, and eventually he was tortured and killed uh, in that concentration camp. But before he was arrested, he wrote a little book called Life Together. It's a short book. It's not very long. It's about 100 pages, and uh, it has five chapters, and it's a great book, and I'd encourage you, pick it up if you can. Uh, We actually will probably get a copy to put in the back in the library so you can um, check it out. But he has this last chapter here is titled Confession and Communion. I want to read just a little bit to you because I think that there's something exceptional about confession. This is what he says. He says, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left in loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship with one another as believers 
and as devout people does not come until we can come together in fellowship as sinners. The pious fellowship, the lofty fellowship, those who consider themselves better than others can never permit a sinner. So everybody must conceal their sin from one another and from themselves. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. (laughs) So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth that says you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now, come, as the sinner that you are, to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. My son, says Proverbs, give me thine heart. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers or sisters as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. If we can't be real about our own failings here with each other, where can we be real? We are every one of us saved by grace. And so that's why I I hope that you were so paying attention to Debbie last week and the example that she was setting forward for us. Does that mean that we're going to have a public confession time? Everybody stands up and delivers their sins? No, we're not going to do that. Don't worry. Don't get antsy. But it's a reminder. That is what leadership looks like. That is what leadership looks like. When we take our position and lay it down and say, I'm here to serve. God in all of his exalted nature has reached his hand down to humanity. He's chosen us over an exalted existence. He's chosen us. There's only one time in Scripture that we see Jesus expressing what it could have looked like for him to bear his full authority before us. And that is when he's standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, are you really a king? And Jesus says to him, Pilate, if I wanted to, I could call forward thousands of angels. They could level your empire overnight if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. In fact, in Scripture, the only time you see the authority of Jesus, the only time he begins to exercise divine authority is when he's casting out demons, is when he's healing the sick, is when he's multiplying bread. He exercises his authority in order to serve others. Let me tell you something. That is something we need more of. If you're here and you're thinking, I want to have authority, I want to be in a position of authority, you have better be ready to lay your authority down to serve other people because God will never tolerate someone in a position of authority if they will not humble themselves like Christ and serve others. That's just a fact. 
verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. It wasn't just that he didn't use his authority for his own gain. He took on the nature of a slave, of a servant, of the lowest class. There was nothing below him. There was no station below him. I, I think that the measure of a pastor is somebody who's willing to clean toilets. And brothers and sisters, if you are not a pastor, you've got to be willing to join me. <laughs> there is nothing below us here. We are servants like Christ is a servant. Uh, she's not here today, but I'm going to break on Margot Huffman for a little bit. That woman, I, I, this is what I love about Margot. I'm going to talk liberally because she's not here. This is what I love about Margot. I'll show up, and it's like, you know, starting to come into fall. And I'll show up, and without even thinking about it, I'll enter the foyer here, and I'll think to myself, something feels fallish about this room. Yeah. And then I'll notice the pillows and the little decorations, you know. And during Christmas time, you see a wreath outside. She doesn't uh, get any sort of compensation for that, I hope you realize. And I don't go to her and say, Margo, would you mind... Would you mind making this place look a little decorative? This is the heart of a servant who just comes in and serves. Doesn't do it for any sort of attention. I'm, I'm giving her a lot of attention now because God bless Margot. If you see her next time, would you just, you don't have to tell her that I bragged on her, but would you just say, My Margo, I just really love you. I just really love what you do for us, for our community here. Another person is Jay. Jay is here, and I'm going to brag on him a little bit, I know. Jay is so faithful, he comes every single week. And clean, helps to clean, helps to do the vacuuming and emptying trashes and that sort of thing. Thank you, Jay. He's been doing that for years now. And, it, and I love this guy so much. He's got such a servant's heart. He even calls me. He's sick. And he says, Pastor, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come in. I'm just so sorry. I'm like, man, you're a volunteer. You come here out of your own time for years? You don't have to apologize for anything. So thank you, Jay. That's, Jay is an example of Christ to us. Yeah, amen. Thank you. And there's so many others that I'm not, I could spend all day going person by person um, and the examples of servanthood that we have here. But that is a strength. That is us following in the footsteps of Jesus. That's us being humble enough to say, I'm going to start serving other people. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul does not say, listen, there was once a great person, a noble person who died a heroic death, and how wonderful it is to know that person. He says this, consider that we confess our Lord and Savior is God, and for our sake, he humbled himself. He assumed a human nature. He became a slave and was obedient even to death on a cross. For me, he humbles himself. For me, he is finally crucified. And although he is at the same time very God, he redeems me from sin and death. That was Martin Luther. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst, says Paul in 1 Timothy. God has come to save sinners. Let's finish this out. Let's go to verse 9, because the cross is not the end of this story. And praise God that it's not. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys have it memorized. (laughs) You all know what it says. Christ was raised from the dead after lying and dead, lying in a tomb for three days. The power of God resurrected him. He was raised, and we were raised with him. This is what humility means, humbling ourselves with Christ so that one day we might share in his resurrection. That's baptism. That's our Christian walk, humbling myself with Christ so that one day I might share in his resurrection. James writes this. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Brothers and sisters, I want to end today with that thought. Humble yourselves before God. Put down your rivalries. Put down your anxieties. Lay down your fear. There is no limit on his resources. You might be looking at a bank account that's dwindling, but God's bank is full. There is no limit to his mercy and to his grace. Lay down your weapons because God wants to show victory through his own hand. God wants to exalt you to the presence of his glory. So would you humble yourselves today? Like we were praying, sorrow might come in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We were singing that. In humility, be like-minded to the people around you. Love one another. Little children, would you love one another? Oh, please, would you please do that? If you do nothing else, love one another and fulfill Christ's commandment. So let's come to the cross today. Let's go before God. All right, we're going to have a time of prayer. I want to invite Adrian. Can you, can you come up and play a little bit on the piano for us? And we're just going to have a moment of reflection. All right, we're just going to have a small moment of reflection. I'm going to invite the prayer the prayer team to come on up. They're going to be available up here for you. But I want to encourage you. I think today, of all things that we need to do. I think what we, what we absolutely need to do is come into the presence of Jesus and just be. You know, Donna was uh, talking about the vision that she heard, had during worship about moving up the steps of promises into God's glory and then resting and simply worshiping God and simply being in his presence. I think that's what we need to do right now. We need to take some time just to rest, to be in God's presence. So Adrian's going to play a song for us. We're going to just sing together. But I encourage you, if you need prayer, you can come up to receive prayer. But if you would, just as we prepare ourselves for that, if you would just pray with me, would you just put your hands out in front of you just like this? Dear Jesus, we want your presence here. God, it's in your presence that we are made whole, O Lord. Jesus, it's by your hand that we are healed. Lord, I thank you this morning because you did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. But Jesus, you humbled yourself to come and be with us and be near us. So right now, Lord, if there's somebody here today who says, I need a touch from God. I need the presence of spirit in my life. I need Jesus to be here near me and with me. 
Lord, would you show up? Would you come now, Jesus? Pour out your spirit on them, Lord. Pour out your spirit and be with them, Jesus.